Today we're in chapter 9, we're going to be starting off in verse 37, so if you can, find it in your Bibles, in your app, whatever, uh, head that way. Now, what we've got today is these four short stories in the life of Christ and His disciples, uh, and, and so we're going to read each of them as we come to them, so they're fresh in our mind just as we start to unpack each section, and we'll just jump right in to the first one, uh, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. And he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to, to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please open our eyes to understand your word today? Holy Spirit, would you do what you do? Would you give us a love for your word, a a sense of wonder as we learn about our Lord Jesus? We we also ask that you would apply it to our lives so that we we see the reality of our sin and that we see the glory of our Savior. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what we find here is quite a contrast, isn't it, compared to last week, the transfiguration up upon the mountain and and what they're coming down the mountain to here, right? And and last week we're seeing this glorious light and and the beauty of the the Lord Christ. And and then we come down and there's the darkness of this demon possession of a little boy. It's an absolute heartbreaking picture that we're seeing here. This this little boy has something... uh, or similar to what we would call epileptic seizures today, but only he goes a bit further, right? He foams at the mouth. Mark in his gospel tells us that he becomes stiff as a board as well as both deaf and dumb. Now, kids, dumb is really just an old word that that means he can't talk. Uh, That's what they're saying there. In the gospel of Matthew, he points out that this demon caused the little boy as he goes stiff to fall into the fire on multiple occasions. And so you can begin to see Uh, what this father is dealing with as he sees this pain in his child's life. And and the the boy's father came to Jesus' disciples, right? And and they were willing to help him. And yet, as we saw there in verse 40, right? They could not heal him. Which makes us wonder, why in the world could they not heal him here? Why did they fail at this? Why, Why couldn't they cast this demon out? After all, in the very first verse of this chapter, which I now realize was almost two months ago, but in the very first verse of this chapter, um, Jesus had given the twelve apostles, and I quote, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So what happened? Did did they lose their powers? Did did they use the wrong magic word here? Something like it's it's a leviosa, not a leviosa, right? Something like that going on? (laughs) That's not the reason. 
There weren't magic words, right? They didn't lose their powers. But the, the reason that they failed is, is seen in the way that Jesus actually responds to the Father here. When Jesus responds not to the Father, but to what the Father says, he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Anyone who's been in a classroom or taught anyone on any level can understand that the tone of Jesus' words here are, are of a, a teacher who's disappointed at the, the failure for students to learn what it is they've been teaching in such a clear way that it seems they should be getting by now. And so Jesus is, is absolutely chastising the crowd here, but more specifically, more personally, he's chastising his own disciples here because they've been with them for over a year at this point. And because they could have healed the boy if they simply had been trusting God to do it. And, and I say that because Mark tells us that, uh, that the reason they could not cast out this demon is they failed to pray asking God to do it. The, the bottom line is they need, to be, or they need to depend upon God instead of their own abilities. Which it seems to be what must have happened here. We see the kindness of our Lord here, though, when, when, when he tells them, uh, you know, this desperate father, bring, bring your son here. I know they couldn't do that. I know that they failed to do that. But bring your son here. Jesus intends to do something for him. And Jesus does. He rescues the boy from this demon possession and, and all the consequences that come with that. You see, in, in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, we get more, more details. After the demon leaves the boy, he, he is said to just fall to the ground like a corpse. Can imagine what the father's thinking. What is this worse? What has just happened to my son? I, um, in one of my son's recent cross-country events, I, you've noticed me with cameras lately. I get to the very end and was taking pictures of all the students as they cross. And, and as one student from another team crosses the line, he just barely hit it and just drops like he's dead, just passed out on the ground. And I kind of panic. And there's an army soldier next to me, and he kind of panics based on his choice of vocabulary. Um, <coughs> He's like, oh, he passed out. No. Um, and, and kind of panicking, what's wrong with this guy? But the guy that does this all the time, that runs these races all the time, or run, like, organizes these races, looks at him and he's like, he's fine, just go pick him up. And he was. He absolutely was. That, that's Jesus' reaction here. When everyone else might be panicking, Jesus knows what's going on. He, he calmly takes the boy by the hand and he lifts him up and he gives him back to the Father. Healed and well again. So there's two things I want us to see here in this little part of, or this section of our passage today. First, here we see a model for a godly parenting. It should be quite obvious here. The boy's father goes to Jesus on behalf of his child and seeks the Lord's help. Parents, we must, must be taking our children before the Lord in prayer. Both praying with them and also praying for them. Right, long before they get into deep trouble, but certainly when they do get into trouble, that we are praying for them, take them to the Lord. The second thing to see here is really the main point of this passage. We need to trust God to do what only God can do. Too, too often we, we try to serve God in our own strength, thinking that we have the power to do what only God can do. Now, you know, one aspect of this is we need to trust God in our evangelism. I, I hope you know that your rhetoric, uh, meaning your speaking ability, your speaking skills, are, are not what will bring someone to faith. Only the grace of God can do that. 
Now, you're still called to go and to share the gospel, to speak it, but your abilities are not what's going to cause that. We need to uh, trust the Lord with that. We also need to trust Him with our discipleship as well. Uh, you, can have all, or you can give all the godly advice in the world, and, and you should, but, but listen to this. You cannot be the Holy Spirit for somebody else. You, you cannot make someone else follow the Lord in the way that you know they should. You just can't do that. Um, believe me. Laura and I, on more than one occasion, have foolishly tried and learned the heartbreaking lesson that you cannot be the Holy Spirit for someone. So you must trust the Lord to work. We must learn to, to, you know, to not stand upon our own strength, but to bring everything to the Lord, knowing He must do it. And, and so this miracle then concludes, and as many others do, right? We see it there in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, real quick, before we move on, do you take the time when the Lord answers some prayer to just stop and be in awe at God for what He's done in your life? To just let that sink in a little bit? Because, and I say that because most of us, myself included, could probably improve greatly to just stop and marvel at the Lord's wonder. When someone comes to faith, when someone's healed in some way that you've been praying for, when you're, you've been praying for something specific and you see it, the Lord answered these prayers. So just stop and, and be in awe of our Lord. We've got to move on because we've got four of these today. Um, our, our next story picks up from the perspective of, of the people being astonished. That's the context in which Jesus is going to be speaking into. And it begins in, in verse 43 here. Follow along uh, with me as we read again. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now this one's pretty simple, really. Jesus uh, didn't want all this marveling at the works he's doing to become a distraction from the real core, main reason that Jesus' uh, ministry is all about to begin with, right? To distract them from the core of it. Because you, you've got to know that the main gospel message isn't that Jesus can cast out demons, though he can. It isn't that, that Jesus can walk on water or restore fam families or, or do all kinds of wonderful things for our temporal life, although he can do those wonderful things. The, the main reason that Jesus came into the world was to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. And this is the second time that Jesus points his disciples back to this, up to this to this upcoming suffering that's inevitable, not inevitable, that's part of the plan to begin with. And, and they don't get it because God has supernaturally um, has them hear the words without really understanding what they're hearing, right? And, until at a later time. And it, it seems the reason that Jesus does this is so that it's going to give them greater clarity after his resurrection as they remember this stuff and they begin to put it together. It, it, you know, what causes... The disciples' great confusion at this point as they hear it, not understanding him, is later going to be uh, a huge encouragement to them, particularly as they understand and begin to experience that they're going to have their, their own suffering as they go forward in life and ministry. Uh, we're going to move on to the third one. We'll spend a little more time here. Uh, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 46 here. John answered, nope, that's 49. 46, an argument arose among them, as to which of them was the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the first thing we learn here is is that long before Twitter and Facebook, people were having ridiculous arguments about ridiculous subjects, right? And and still, as much as the crazy arguments as you probably witnessed online uh, in this era we live, this one might just take the cake uh, as they're asking this question, which one of us is the greatest, right? Who is the greatest? Each of them declaring some reason to each other, and I'd love to have heard them just... You know, mostly just to see how ridiculous they were. Um, but, but as they're explaining to one another why they're the greatest. Now, if you've grown up with siblings, you've probably experienced something similar to this as you argue about which one of you is mom's favorite, right? Here's the reasons why I'm mom's favorite. Uh, and, and so we, we've also this, we, we've seen this, this arrogant proclamation of a personal greatness just flourish in, in our culture world today. And, and, and some trace it back to an exact date in history uh, where they say, you know, just the, the levy of arrogance just burst on this one particular date to February 25th, 1964. Um, anyone just out of show, recognize that date, show of hands. None of you. I didn't recognize it either I, until I did some research. Uh, on that day, there was a boxer by the name of Cassius Clay who defeated a guy named Sonny Liz- Liston for the heavyweight boxing title of the world. Uh, anyone know what that boxer's name later becomes? Okay, you know him now. Muhammad Ali, that's right. After his victory, he, he begins to shout out to anyone who listen. He's shouting, and this is quoting him, I am the greatest I am the greatest thing that ever lived. And it goes on and on. I'll just leave it at that right there. People in 1964 did not know what to do with that statement. They didn't know what to do with an athlete that was boasting of himself in that way. And yet, think about it. In recent years, when when NBA player James Harden proclaims, I am the best player of the world. And LeBron James one-ups him by declaring, I am the greatest player of all time. People hardly bat an eye except to try to correct him so that they know it's Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. <clears throat> but we hardly bat an eye when we, when we hear people say this crazy stuff now. And, and here's the thing where that really can be a, a, a dangerous thing for us in the church is that when we hear pride like that in the media, when we see it so huge and, and exploding in, in this way, it's easy to look at ourselves and think, I am pretty humble compared to that. Even if it's just not the reality of our hearts. Now, what makes this argument of the apostles here even worse is that they're having this argument in the presence of Jesus. Do you all understand this? Jesus is physically there with them, and they are trying to decide which of them is the greatest. This is like McDonald's and Burger King arguing about who's the greatest in the presence of Chick-fil-A, right? (laughs) Or or it'd be like John and I arguing about which one of us is the most intelligent as Albert Einstein sits back and listens in on us. you know, Jesus could, could lean in and just, guys, I am literally perfect. Perfect. But he doesn't. Jesus kindly, humbly, never points this out to the disciples. Instead, he seeks to teach them in this moment uh, a humility because he knows divinely what's going on in their hearts, namely that they are incredibly prideful, right? He knows that his disciples are struggling with this, this personal ambition, 
You know, even as they're in this, this, this uh, sitting under the teaching of Jesus constantly. Now, I guess when we hear that I did anyway, you begin to wonder, what, what do they mean by the greatest anyway? What, 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 what do they begin? Do they mean who's, who's got the greatest authority, the greatest position when they get to the, uh, the kingdom of God? Or who's the most loved or the most valued? Which one of them is the most holy? You know, is this what they're arguing about? And, and really, it doesn't matter. The question could address any of those areas. It could address all of those areas. And Jesus' point to them would be absolutely the same. That is that their whole sense of greatness is completely messed up. In fact, they're so wrong that reality is 180 degrees the, the opposite direction. It's, it's like they're trying to win a game of golf by getting the highest score. That's, that's not how it works. And pride is not how someone becomes or shows themselves to be great in the kingdom of God. And so then what Jesus did and what Jesus said in response to this ridiculous, foolish argument are both very, very important. What, what Jesus did was take a child onto his lap or onto his side here. You see, in the first century Middle Eastern culture, children were considered of very little importance or, or to nothing at all. Sadly, it's, it's still true in some Middle Eastern cultures today. And for this reason, most rabbis at the time simply ignored children completely, would have nothing to do with them. And so when Jesus places this boy upon his side, he's demonstrating care and willingness for, for those who are, are lowly in society. In fact, some of the lowest in their society. That, that's what Jesus does. What Jesus says is this. Let me remind you, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. He just flips the switch. The script completely over rather. Jesus is saying, I, I know that you do want to be great in the kingdom. And there might be something good behind that on some level. So let me tell you how to be great according to the only standard that matters. The standard of the Lord God. And so if you want to be great, then be the least. Associate with, with someone that is lowly like a child was in this culture. Care about people who have no social value, no prestige, nothing to offer you by your association with them. I'm always reminded of a, a, a story, and I might get the details wrong if you look it up. But long after uh, singer Rich Mullen's death, who died just outside of Topeka, actually... Um, he, he was a, a guy that did not like the spotlight. And then at a, a Dove Award ceremony once, he, he showed up early and he was supposed to be getting an award that night. And some people were telling the story that he, he snuck in and, and was helping with the servers who were preparing the food for later on, most of which had no idea who the guy was. This is long before it was done for some social media uh, you know, attention. It was, they, people didn't know him were like, it was genuine. He just wanted to get in and help them. Um, you know, and so it's something like that. But, but really at the heart of what Jesus is getting at here is it's an issue of, of pride is what he's talking about. How, how we relate to those of lowly status around us will reveal our, our pride or our humility. And, and by this, I mean in some practical ways how, how you treat that, that kid who is often shunned at school or maybe just in the neighborhood or with a group of friends of some sort. I mean how you react to that guy in the office who nobody likes because he's really annoying. Like you could probably give reasons why no one likes him. 
but, but the way that you might interact with that person. I, I mean that how you treat the people who are different from you in, in a thousand different ways. See, greatness in the eyes of our Lord is when we humbly associate with those who are lowly in our cultural context. Right? For the glory of God, for the good of the people you're interacting with. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, we hear a little more of what Jesus says to his disciples. And in Matthew 18, verse 4, he says this, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in other words, to be like the child is by, by having a simple faith and also an unassuming way of interacting with others. You, you ever notice that when, uh, when children meet someone famous or prestigious of some great great degree, provided no one's talked them up beforehand, but they, they just treat them like any other human being, right? They can be meeting the president and just like any other adult they're meeting. Um, you know, that's, that's what he's getting at here. And so the bottom line is that if we want to be great in God's eyes, we, we must be humble. It's the only way. It, this is a call for us to battle uh, against the self-promotion of, of our sinful heart that our sinful hearts just gravitate towards. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we tend to think of as pretty amazing. You, you might remember he called himself the chief of sinners, right? The worst of worst in that way. He, he, he through the Holy Spirit, also said and wrote in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And the Apostle Peter, who's, who's hearing Jesus' words at this moment at the bottom, uh, you know, as Jesus is speaking in our passage today, writes in, in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And if this all sounds like a, just a painful task to you, let me, let me just finish this section by, by reading a little statement by J.C. Ryle, uh, who, who once wrote this. He said, Happy are those Christians who have learned to live for others more than themselves. It's a joyful thing, not, not just something we do painfully. Uh, so we got one more passage. It's just two verses. Uh, verse 49. Let's, let's go ahead and read those now. <clears throat> John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him but he does not follow, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And so this is John the Apostle speaking. I don't know if you know as much about John. John is a very passionate man. He tends to see the world in black and white from, from everything we see of John. In fact, in our passage next week, uh, you can read ahead sometime this week, but he's going to uh, see these people, Samaritans, reject Jesus. And, and his question to Jesus is, can we pray for fire to come down from heaven and destroy these people? So that gives you some sense of, of the zeal of John here, right? Uh, a very strong sense of us versus them. It makes sense. He's the one who says this. Uh, and so at some point previous, maybe, you know, Jesus must not have been around at the time. A group of disciples came across this, this freelance exodus Right? A man that's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he's apparently been successful, and yet John doesn't know the guy who's doing this uh, because he's not been part of this group that's, that's part of Jesus' 12, or probably the wider group of disciples that have been following Jesus either. And so John's thinking, you know, this, this guy is not a legitimate franchisee, right? Um, and so John is like this, this human cease and desist letter that shows up, right? We will stop this man. 
And, and, and in this exchange with Jesus, he, he, he seems to be looking for this confirmation. Here's what we did. It's right, right? We, we did the right thing, right? Um, but Jesus didn't want his disciples then in that moment or even now today to make the mistake of battling against the wrong enemy. And we are all too good at that. Um, and, and so what Jesus says here, though, is do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, this passage is not teaching that theological differences don't matter. Nor that we should just be united around just being united, right? Something like that. Uh, or that we should tolerate wrong teaching or, you know, heretical teaching or immoral practices. There are groups today who do call themselves Christians today, but who do not proclaim the gospel as Jesus proclaims it, uh, as the scriptures proclaim it. And in those cases, it is right for us not to have union with them, not to work with them, and not to be for them. But the man in our story here is a different situation. The man in our story isn't teaching anything heretical about Jesus. He's a genuine disciple. He's just not part of their group. Not just like that. And so even though John doesn't know this man, on some level, Jesus does know this man. And so while it's good to be zealous for truth and, and purity in the church, we also need sympathy patience and wisdom with our zeal or we can quickly become arrogant and judgmental people you know this you absolutely know this right most of us have found ourselves in that position before and, and as you know that there are other groups in, in this town on the campus here in town across the globe who are not part of our group but they are genuine Christians who are redeemed by the same blood of Christ that you and I are redeemed by if our faith is in him but by our group, we might mean something like the PCA, our denomination. We might mean something like Reformed, right? The, the, the subcategory of Christian that we fall under for very good reasons. Uh, by the other, in our case, you know, it might be another church. It might be a different campus ministry. And, and while we may have some important differences that we hold to with biblical conviction, right? If those differences do not strike at the heart of the gospel, and if those Others are, are, are preaching the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then, then that's the case. In that case, it's, it's clear that we should not stop them. Nor should we want to see them fail miserably. Right? Or something of that nature. We, we should recognize that they are with us because they're not against us. Or more to the point, they also are for Jesus. And they also want to see the lost come to faith in Christ. And so that, you know, you might have differences. I'm in a local pastoral prayer group, and we get together every other week on Tuesday morning. And the criteria is quite simple to be in this group. You must believe that these are the holy words of God, inerrant words of God, and that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And you'd be shocked how many churches that actually whittles it down to in our town. And yet, I'll, I'll tell you this. When we gather together, when we pray together, it is so easy to just see the differences between us. But it's also encouraging to see that God is, is actually working in many different groups that are different than us. Right? He's, he's bringing loss to faith. He's bringing immature believers to maturity. And for that, we can and we should rejoice. Now... I was reading something about Woodstock not long ago. Uh, not the little bird, the uh, massive concert back in 1969. 
Um, it, it was a bit of an anti-war movement, and they often clashed, the people who came often clashed with the uh, United States Army at, at previous events. And a, a couple of days into the event anyway, people were in need of some medical assistance, and, and so there were 45 Army doctors who said, yeah, we'll go help out. And the Army decides to fly them in on those helicopters, you've probably all seen the old pictures of, that, uh, uh, you know, the army green helicopters coming in and as they were flying into to Woodstock the people became anxious they became suspicious what's the army doing here are they here to break it up why and just kind of panicking and then someone gets onto the speaker and and says in the microphone explains what's happening we have six people the doctors are coming and then he says they are with us word for word they are with us they are not against us and it changed the perspective of the people attending this concert even, right? And with this new perspective that instead of being suspicious and, and fearful of these helicopters coming in, they, they begin to applaud their arrival with, with gratitude. See, the, the, the bottom line here is that, that Jesus is getting at is that we can eliminate many of our enemies by, by learning from Jesus here to tolerate those who are not opposed to us, not opposed to the gospel. Or as my good friend Brad Mills has said, we, we might have a lot fewer enemies if we stopped creating them out of our allies. So let's wrap up these four stories, right? It's kind of hard sometimes to bring them together, but there is some unifying factors here. Uh, did, did you notice that all four of, of these stories, we, we see four mistakes, four sinful sins of some sort uh, that we as Christians are just prone to make? And the first one, right, is, is not trusting God to do what only God can do, re relying on our own strength. The, the second one is forgetting that the cross is, is the very core, the ministry of Christ. Uh, the third one is being prideful instead of humble. And the fourth one is, is making enemies of allies. And we see those, and you begin to wonder, I, I hope, are, hey, am I making any of these sinful mistakes here? Uh, the majority of us will make most of these mistakes in our life if we have not already. And, and if you find that discouraging, I, I want to point something else to you here. Uh, you notice that the first disciples made these mistakes. Uh, they did. But, but we know that Jesus did not make a mistake in choosing these men. And, and from that, we learn that Jesus has grace and mercy and, and forgiveness for those who fall into these sinful behaviors. Right? The grace and the mercy that calls us back to repentance. And Jesus continues to love and disciple these guys. Jesus knows exactly how foolish they are as he's walking around along with them and walking through life with them. And still he is willing to continue forward to go to the cross and to die on the cross for them as well as everyone else who comes to faith in Christ. In one sense... The disciples' lives here give an answer to that question that Jesus asked back in verse 41. You remember what it was? He said, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And in Christ's life, we, we get the answer. By, you know, by his life and death and his resurrection, we, we know the answer is that as long as it takes to finish the work of your salvation and, and to teach you the way to live life. Let's pray. Father, there is so much to learn in these four verses. In response to them, we ask that you would strengthen our faith. We, we ask that you would teach us to embrace that our life is going to include suffering, 
just as yours did. We ask that you would give strength to our, our, our souls to crush the pride that is so prevalent in our lives so that we might live humbly before you. And we ask for wisdom to treat those who are, are different from us and yet for you, truly for you, not as enemies, but as allies. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.